Hello and welcome back to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe Editor in Brussels. And I'm Colm O'Mungoyne, RTE's Deputy Foreign Editor, normally in RTE headquarters in Dublin, but working from home in Kildare. We're delighted to be back on the Brexit beat following a break necessitated by the coronavirus pandemic. And we'll be bringing you up to date with how Brexit has been unfolding since the emergency struck in early March. And we'll focus on today's meeting of the Joint Committee. Remember that? Of course you do. But if you don't, we'll explain everything. And we'll assess the state of play in the negotiations between the EU and the UK on their future relationship, what the big stumbling blocks are, and when we might return to the infamous negotiating tunnel. But first, Tony, today, what's been going on in the virtual ether hovering between London and Brussels? Yes, Colm, today we had the second meeting of the Joint Committee. The Joint Committee was set up by the withdrawal agreement to make sure that the withdrawal agreement is being implemented properly. It's really focusing on about five different areas, but the one of interest to us is the protocol on Northern Ireland. It also has to look at how the other protocols uh, are being implemented, uh, such as the one on Gibraltar, on British bases in Cyprus, uh, on the financial settlement, citizens' rights, and so on. But the whole point of the Joint Committee is that it has to provide political direction by both sides on how these various elements of the withdrawal agreement are being implemented. And this is the second meeting, so it was carried out by video conference. The UK's representative is Michael Gove, the Cabinet Office Minister. The EU side, the representative is Maros Ševčević, who is a vice president of the European Commission. He's uh, uh, from Slovakia. And Michel Barnier sat in as well. And uh, 15 member states also joined the joint committee meeting today and exceptionally we had the first minister and deputy first minister of northern ireland joining in as well arlene foster and michelle o'neill and they were able to make their own interventions obviously the irish government was present so uh, quite a big involvement in this virtual meeting and it was really the first time that both sides had talked since the UK brought out its command paper on how it was going to implement the protocol on Northern Ireland. The Joint Committee is, when it comes to the protocol on Northern Ireland, the main body of work it has to do is to work out the criteria by which goods coming from Great Britain into Northern Ireland will face tariffs or if they will enjoy an exemption to those tariffs. Now, to make things simple, any goods that come from Great Britain into Northern Ireland that are at risk of crossing the land border will face a tariff if there's a differential between the UK's tariff schedule and the EU's tariff schedule. So in other words, it's to avoid people bringing goods into the single market via Northern Ireland as a way of sidestepping the EU customs duties and tariffs and so on. Now, you've got a fundamental difference of interpretation here because the EU believes that all goods coming in are, if you like, guilty until proven innocent. The UK has to make a clear case that those goods are not going to cross the border. Whereas for the UK side, they believe that all goods are innocent until proven guilty. In other words, you have to assume that all goods coming into Northern Ireland from Great Britain are not going to cross the border. Right. And, and the EU would have to make a case to show how definitely goods coming in are at risk of crossing the border and evading EU customs controls. That's really the very knotty, difficult issue that the Joint Committee is going to have to address. It hasn't really got into the weeds on that one yet. It is more at the moment focused on how the UK is 
making the preparations for the new regime to take effect on the 1st of January. So, of course, when that comes around, the UK will be a third country, but Northern Ireland remains under the EU's single market rules and under the EU's customs union rules. So any goods coming in from Great Britain will be regarded as uh, coming from a third country and they will be subject to checks and controls at Belfast Port, at Belfast Airport, at Larn Port and Warren Point. And that, of course, is to make sure that you don't have to have those checks along the land border, which is what the whole process of the backstop and, and then this new protocol was about. One of the issues that had come up before was the EU wanting to have a presence in Northern Ireland to be able to verify that the Northern Ireland protocol was being implemented. And it seems that it wouldn't be any problem, but it, it is now a problem. Is there any, any sign of resolution on, on that? Okay, so I think about a week after Britain left the EU on the 31st of January, the European Union's diplomatic arm, it's the External Action Service, uh, which is the diplomatic arm of the European Union, uh, they wrote to Simon MacDonald, the Permanent Secretary of the Foreign Office, saying we'd like to discuss setting up an EU presence in Belfast because the protocol provides for EU officials to provide a certain oversight or guidance when the UK is implementing EU customs rules and regulatory rules at Northern Ireland ports. And this request was flatly rejected. The EU sent a second follow-up letter and it was rejected again. And this suddenly blew up into a row over an EU presence in Belfast that no one was expecting. Now, around that time, RTE was able to get sight of a letter from Simon MacDonald a year previously to his counterpart in Brussels saying that the UK would be delighted to have a diplomatic EU consular presence right. in Belfast. Which isn't unprecedented. I mean, there is, there, is a US cons- there is a US consulate in, in Belfast already. So the idea of having a, a, a consular presence in Belfast is is not unheard of. It's not unheard of. And this, this thing blew up into quite an unseemly row because the EU rightly or wrongly felt that given that they'd had correspondence with the UK side a year previously, in which they had said quite clearly and unambiguously that they would have no problem with having an EU office in Belfast and also in Cardiff and Edinburgh. But suddenly now that the protocol had been agreed and that the treaty was taking effect, the EU comes back and says, by the way, can we just resume that conversation we were having a year ago? Can we talk about what kind of office we can set up in Belfast. And then the UK says, absolutely not. You're not getting an office in Belfast. That would be divisive. The Good Friday Agreement has to protect both communities. Clearly, the union aside don't want to have an EU presence in Belfast. And it all kind of got out of hand quite quickly. Now, I think the EU kind of backed off a little bit because they just felt that this was a a public scrap that they weren't going to win in the short term because obviously it's UK sovereign territory. They decide who gets to open an office in their territory. But ultimately, this issue is going to have to be resolved in in one way or another, because you are going to have to have EU officials who can provide that level of oversight to make sure that, that UK customs officers or vets are complying with EU law, that they are implementing these checks and controls the correct way. They also may need the advice and, and guidance of EU officials, because after all, they're the experts. And you know, where do, where do you put them? 
Do they just fly in and out? Do they do they work in a hotel? Dundalk you know, is a nice they, town. These are sensitive you know? and, and symbolic issues. Say again. I said Dundalk is a nice town. Maybe I think that would. I, I, well, I say that slightly tongue in cheek, but that was one of the suggestions, wasn't it? That people they would. Well, well, that was a order. that that was a suggestion that was made. I think there was a Dundalk councillor who who wrote to the European External Action Service saying Dundalk is a great town and we'd be more than happy to host the office there, but. Mm. My conversations with the commission lead me to believe that they would not be no disrespect to Dundalk, but obviously, but that, you know, it's it's important for them to have a presence on the ground in Belfast and that they wouldn't want to be sort of kept outside the fence, kind of peering over into Northern Ireland. They would prefer to have some kind of presence where they can work on the ground. And again, what they're stressing is that these this would not be a diplomatic presence. It would be a technical presence of, you know, vets and EU customs officials who can make sure that the, the job is being done. The way it was described to me is like, this is a route that nobody would have chosen at the beginning of the process, but it kind of blew up. It was a, a rather unpleasant exchange in the first joint committee meeting at the end of April. The EU drew in its horns a little bit, but it's still an issue that's going to have to be resolved one way or the other. Since about mid-March, are the outstanding issues still the same on, on Brexit? The stumbling blocks, are they fisheries, governance, security and justice issues and the level playing field? Have things really substantially moved on? So the first round of negotiations took place around, the, I think, the 2nd of March in Brussels. And that was before the pandemic had really come home to people and before the lockdowns happened. So that was a, a physical meeting in Brussels. They avoided handshakes, both chief negotiators Michel Barnier on the EU side and David Frost on the UK side but they were in the same room together there, there were I think about 100 on each side meeting and setting out their opening stall. Now the pandemic struck fairly dramatically then shortly afterwards so that limited the number of negotiating rounds that they could have and it meant that the subsequent negotiating rounds were done by video conference and this caused enormous headaches both technologically and time-wise but also the big drawback of that whole segment of the negotiations was that there was no person-to-person contact the normal diplomacy nuances the non-verbal communication the kind of meeting in the corridor after the talks happen, meeting uh, over coffee. The settings in which the real negotiating is, is done, according to, to uh, quite a few diplomats who are experienced in this field, yeah, none of that, of course, was possible uh, over video link. And then individual negotiators and officials on both sides were perhaps coming down with the virus themselves. They were working from home. They had children to deal with, spouses, all of the problems that we're all familiar with. Yes, uh, not that we're saying spouses and children are problems per se. They just... (laughs) Most of the time, they're not. (laughs) No, no, not... But yes, in, in, for the purposes of negotiations. Yeah, so all of this was a, was a real drag on, on the on the process. Pretty soon, the big stumbling blocks became apparent. And of course, these were flagged in advance. We, we knew that these were going to be problems. The level playing field issue, fisheries, police and judicial cooperation. And as you say, the governance issue. In other words, what happens in the future if there's a dispute between both sides? How do you settle it? Does the European Court of Justice have a role? And so on. And really, they haven't made any progress uh, on these issues. Uh, and we now have kind of a first half has come to an end. The teams have trotted off the pitch. 
no goals were scored and it was a bad tempered uh, first half lots of uh, yellow cards and so on yeah and we know uh, the second half is going to be shorter because around the time we were last to talk it in march there was some discussion or some speculation at least as to whether or not the coronavirus hiatus would necessitate or give boris johnson the cover for the uk to ask for an extension to the transition period that came to a shuddering halt today and the speculation was ended michael gove saying that's not going to happen. So whatever stumbling blocks there are, they're going to have to be resolved. And when they were saying in the beginning of the year that the time frame was ambitious, what's the superlative for ambitious now that we can use for a deal to be concluded by what, October? Well, Michel Barnier has said that the, the, the deadline for a deal now is the 31st of October because you have to get the deal ratified through national parliaments and the European Parliament and you have to have uh, translations, you have to get legal services to check through it and uh, it has to have a legal translation and and it has to be uh, legally scrubbed as officials say. Uh, So yeah, there's very very little time to do that. So Um, in reality it has to be done before that. I mean, for it to be done, dusted and everything and all of those things to be done by the 31st of October, the agreements in principle and the stumbling blocks have to be overcome substantially before that, do they? Yeah, they'll, they'll have to be resolved before that. Um, I think when the coronavirus struck, there was you know, quite a broad assumption that given the impact on the modalities of the negotiations and the, the huge hit to the British economy, European economies, that Boris Johnson would naturally say, well, OK, we can't negotiate properly in these situations, in this climate, so let's extend the transition. People were here were talking about, OK, just say the negotiations were held up by three months. You can just have a, a, a three-month extension. You don't have to go for a full one year or a full two years. You can tailor the extension to match the time that was lost during the pandemic. But there were clear signals from David Frost, the EU, UK's chief negotiator, and senior cabinet officials and, and officials in Downing Street that they would not, under any circumstances, uh, seek uh, an extension. And if they were going to seek an extension, it would have to be done by the Joint Committee and done by the end of June. And since this is the last joint committee meeting for a while uh, that's happened today, being Friday, this was the last real chance really for the UK to ask for an extension. And of course, uh, as expected, they flatly ruled that out. So that now is completely a historic fact that there's not going to be any extension. So yes, it does. But again, it puts more time pressure on, on the process and on the next few months. What is the shape of an agreement? And, you know, there's no point in me asking you what to stare into a crystal ball and, and, and get us to the end point in October. We were talking to David O'Sullivan, who's the former head of the Directorate General of Trade in the European Commission back in March when we were last doing episodes. And he was saying, look, the Canada deal that Britain says, look, it's very simple. It's off the peg. We just want what Canada gets. and But we want, you know, greater access. He was saying, look, this thing runs to thousands of pages, the EU's deal with Canada. This is just not a deal of that complexity is not going to be concluded. And that was when both sides agreed there had to be greater convergence in certain areas. Here we're trying to agree divergence between the UK and the EU. And there's a huge amount of complexity. I mean, ambitious doesn't even begin to get into the foothills of the complexity here. Yes, and both sides have really fundamental different viewpoints as to what the future relationship would be. I mean, in simple terms, I think the EU wants, I think for both sides to have a kind of a shared vision of their place in the world, that it reflects a kind of a European vision, not necessarily an EU vision, but a a kind of a European way of doing things. And that would be across the board when it comes to standards, when it comes to regulations, that the UK would 
do its own thing, but it would be kind of reflecting the way the EU has done things for a long time. And obviously, as a member that the UK has done as well. Another real stumbling block is that the EU wants even the, the, the less contentious areas like money laundering, for example, they would like a common approach by both sides. The UK says, look, there's an international framework for combating money laundering. And out of 80 countries, we are the first in class. So we don't need to have a formal treaty based agreement with the EU on combating money laundering. The EU's response is, look, you know, you've been part of our financial framework for 40 years. London is a leading financial hub. It makes sense for us to have our own targets and ambitions and approach to money laundering. But the UK saying, no thanks, we're going to do it ourselves. And, and this gets replicated across many areas that are not quite as contentious as the level playing field or fisheries, or police and judicial cooperation. Right. So it shows you that, you know, even on the areas where you think that they could find common ground, there is this nagging philosophical difference between both sides. Is the approach analogous to the old Cornetto, you know, north of the border in Ireland, it was, it was brought to you by Walls, and south of the border it was brought to you by HB. They look and taste exactly the same. They're just called different things. Is this what the UK is arguing for? And... Is it inevitably they're going to just reach a pinch point when you need to have recourse to dispute resolution as to where those disputes are resolved? The European Union wants things resolved ultimately when it applies to European laws and standards in the European Court of Justice, whereas the UK just doesn't want to countenance that. I mean, is it in theory possible it's just when things come up to a dispute that the principles there are the problematic part of it? Well, on some of the key areas... If there is a dispute between both sides, and that dispute involves the interpretation of EU law, so both sides go through the various dispute mechanisms, the dispute resolution mechanisms, it goes to the joint committee, then there's a, there's a procedure for further arbitration. But you know, when it comes down to it, if the dispute is about how you interpret EU law, then the EU is insisting that only the European Court of Justice can give the final word on that. And that final word would be binding. In particular on state aid, the EU's negotiating mandate states that the UK must still adhere to EU state aid rules into the future and it must set up an independent authority to make sure it's complying with EU state aid rules. And this is going to be one of the really difficult nuts to crack in these negotiations. The UK say that they cannot possibly be bound by EU state aid regulations because that would defeat the purpose of Brexit. No democratic country could accept that. Uh, that's according to David Frost in a letter to Michel Barnier. The EU's argument is that it's, it's really fundamental to a trading relationship if one side is able, as they would see it, to rig their economy in favour of British companies so that those companies can undercut European ones, then that's not free and fair competition. And state aid by its nature is dynamic. It's evolving. For example, when the pandemic struck, the EU began to completely cast aside its state aid constraints. And the commission was right, left and centre, permitting member states to bail out companies that were badly affected by the pandemic. Some sectors of the economy may have been around 15, 20 years ago. Maybe those sectors are now not what they were. You know, fundamentally, the EU thinks that state aid and, and the ability for a government to intervene in the economy is a fundamental thing that both sides really have to get right. 
uh, and they have to find a shared way of doing it. But this, again, is something that's complete anathema to, to the UK. For example, if Boris Johnson wants to reward the so-called Red Wall, those seats in, in the Midlands and the north of England with you know big state interventions, then the EU is going to be troubled by that. Again, this is this is a really difficult area. The question is, to what extent will the EU push for the UK to abide by EU regulations, or will they find some other mechanism by which both sides can be fairly content that the other side isn't you know, getting some kind of leg up through state uh, intervention. You mentioned fisheries there. We've actually, you didn't just mention it there. We've mentioned it in damn near every episode we've been doing over the last while. Has that been at all resolved? Because there was some level of friction as to whether or not that was changing and an amount of concern being raised amongst fishing communities from European countries. What was the issue there and where are we at with fisheries at the moment? Yeah, so the, so the fundamental problem in the fisheries side of things is that the UK is proclaiming that it's take, taking back control of its territorial waters and therefore all of the fish in those waters and that this is a totemic issue for the UK. It was a big flag for the Leave campaign in the Brexit referendum. It had all sorts of symbolism because a lot of fishing communities around the UK, especially in Scotland, in Grimsby and places like that, in Cornwall, really hated the common fisheries policy because they felt that the UK didn't get a fair share of the fish in its waters. For the EU, the common fisheries policy was a way of protecting fishing rights that coastal member states in the EU had enjoyed for centuries because it was only in the 1970s that countries started to lay claim to the 200-mile exclusive economic zone around their, their countries. Before that, it was the high seas where anyone could plunder what they wanted. And when the common fisheries policy was set up, they created a thing called relative stability, which was a way of sharing out the quotas to different countries that they argued they had fished these quotas in, in these waters for, for centuries. And this was something that the UK always resented because they didn't feel they were getting a fair share of the fish in their waters. So it's not a huge part of the economic output of either the UK or the European Union, but it has tremendous symbolic and, and sort of populist potential for a very difficult negotiation. Now, what's happened is that the UK has presented an approach to how to share out the stocks in its waters. Uh, and that approach is called zonal attachment. It's a complicated mechanism, which I'll not <laughs> bore people with. Right, okay. But, it, but it, it, zonal attachment is a way of using science and much deeper data to establish where exactly the fish are where they breed, where they spawn. And they're saying this is a more effective and a fairer way of sharing out the stocks. Now, essentially, it would mean that the UK gets a lot more of the fish that it gets at the moment and other countries would suffer, like Ireland would suffer. And of course, you know, EU officials say this is nothing but a quota grab dressed up in science. And it's something that, that they are resisting. Now, Michel Barnier, at one point in, after one of the negotiating rounds, said that zonal attachment fish. is one criteria that we can look at. There are other criteria, such as the historic rights of European fishing fleets. And that was seen by member states as perhaps 
Michel Barnier overstepping his mandate because you remember the mandate that he gets in these negotiations comes from the member states. And when the commission initially drew up its draft negotiating mandate, the member states largely accepted it, but they sent back the fishing part of the mandate and said, no, you've got to make this tougher. We want largely the status quo. In other words, we want the common fisheries policy quota system to stay intact. And that's what we'll be pushing for. So there was a a meeting that Michel Barnier had a few weeks ago with what's called the Group of Eight, which is the eight countries that have strong fishing interests, including Ireland. A few other countries joined in, and the message was that he was told in no uncertain terms that he had to stick to the mandate and that there was not to be any slippage on this question of zonal attachment. So again, you had perhaps a glimmer of some movement on that area, but then that was snuffed out and, you know, both sides have gone back into their trenches. Right. Okay. So no, no particular movement on that one. You'd think really security, justice, home affairs, that kind of cooperation might be relatively easy to secure some level of cooperation because neither side wants to see intelligence slip between the crack. You would think pragmatism would win out at the end of the day. Is, is that how it's looking at the moment? Well, the problem with justice and home affairs, you know, police and judicial cooperation is that it, it involves very sensitive parts of European society. It involves databases with information on criminal suspects. It involves information on things like car registration numbers, the movements of potential criminals across borders. And it involves things like DNA information on suspects. And at at the moment, all member states are pretty much able to reach into the database of another member state, a police database, and root around for information that they need and use it to pursue a particular investigation. Now, they can do that because all member states have signed up to the data protection rules, the rules that govern the use of these databases and the sensitivities around them. Now, if the UK leaves that system, then of course other member states are are going to resist giving the UK access back into those databases and that whole ecosystem of police and judicial cooperation. In particular, the DNA of citizens, the European side are saying that that has to be governed by an oversight by the European Court of Justice because it is such a sensitive area for citizens and the UK is resisting any involvement of the European Court of Justice whatsoever. So again, there you have an issue which which is running into this brick wall of fundamental difference in how both sides view it. Okay, level playing field. In brief, what's involved and what is the major sticking point when it comes to the level playing field? This is potentially, I suppose, one of the more problematic areas. So the level playing field, again, is this idea that if the UK gets access to the EU single market, it shouldn't have a an economic advantage because it's not subject to EU rules and regulations, because those rules and regulations cost companies money. There are procedures which are problematic and and difficult, and you can't simply breeze into the single market without having any of those constraints or obligations and then undercut European countries. Now, the the broad areas that the level playing field covers are things like state aid, which we've discussed, Mm -hmm. uh, the environment, climate change, social and labour law, and taxation. What the EU is effectively said is, and this is set out in the political declaration at the very start of this process, is that they would have non-regression clauses on these areas. So in other words, at the moment Britain leaves the European Union completely, in other words, at the end of the transition, there would be no lowering of standards from where they're at at that point. And of course, at the point 
the UK leaves at the end of the transition, the standards it has are EU standards. So effectively, both sides are saying we won't lower our standards below that particular floor or threshold. And they've talked about having common standards between both sides or corresponding standards. So the EU and on this side of the spectrum of level playing field are not necessarily looking for the UK to just simply follow EU rules willy-nilly into the future. That's more an issue of state aid because it's a much more critical subject. They're looking for a way that both sides can trust each other, that they're not going to lower their standards and then be able to undercut the other. But again, you know, these areas have just got got driven into the sand by the overall lack of movement on both sides because of these fundamental differences of of approach. Again, the EU side would like as far as possible to have a holistic, legally binding approach to all these areas so that you're not going to have problems every couple of months or every couple of years when there's a dispute. They want this thing to, to stand the test of time and they want a framework that is a lot more detailed, a lot more kind of legally binding, whereas the UK doesn't want to be constrained by that approach. They want to say, look, you know, we're going to have very high standards. You know, we have in some situations, we have higher standards than EU ones when it comes to animal health and so on. And we want to be able to do our own thing into the future. So again, you've got this friction between both sides because it's a unique situation. It's a free trade agreement where two sides are not coming closer together, which is the normal dynamic of a free trade agreement. This is a free trade agreement where both sides are are having to pull in different directions. But the European Union doesn't want a notional commitment of, look, we're good for this, our standards will never slip, we would never do that. That's, That's not really something that the European Union is going to be satisfied with. No, it's not because, you know, it is it is a body of, of law and, and it has treaties that, that keep everybody on the same page and constrain member states from, from drifting off to doing their own thing. So it, it is, again, it's, it's, it's going to be a tricky area. Mm. Now, obviously, they've had the first sequence of negotiating rounds and haven't really made progress on any of these areas. And now the issue is, when will we speed things up? How will we manage to get some resolution here before the October deadline? And I think at this point, we should probably talk about tunnels. Tunnels would suggest there are grounds at least for a determined effort and maybe a spark of optimism there. But listening to Helen McEntee yesterday on Morning Ireland, she was saying the government sent a memo to Cabinet two weeks ago. They're re-engaging with businesses on Brexit planning. They're looking at obviously a lot of the supports here for business for no deal planning and that kind of thing were repurposed for coronavirus, she was saying. And that would all sound pessimistic. A tunnel sounds optimistic. So tell us what a tunnel is and why it's being talked about now. You'll remember when we were covering the conclusion of the withdrawal agreement last year and even even the previous year when Theresa May's withdrawal agreement was was concluded it was an extremely fraught and toxic atmosphere because you had all of the chaos and turmoil of the House of Commons being played out each week uh, any leaks from Brussels were fueling you know a very torrid atmosphere so they felt that you know they wouldn't get anywhere unless they were able to have a something of a media blackout where they weren't having to brief journalists or uh, having to brief the cabinet in London or having to brief member states so they created this virtual tunnel which would be a very intense period of negotiations i mean there's evidence of officials meeting at six in the morning and working right through till 2am to get something over the line over a two or three or four week period. The assumption is that because they've had such little progress so far, they're going to have to do that again. Now, the key thing here is when do you have the tunnel? And I think 
for the UK, they are clearly haunted by what happened last year because you'll recall that the UK plans for Ireland and a customs border on the island of Ireland that was going to be streamlined by technology and derogations from EU law. And of course, that was being rejected right, left and centre by Ireland and the Commission and member states. And then you had this key moment in Thornton Manor. Boris Johnson met Leo Varadkar. They had a pathway to an agreement. And with the clock ticking, three weeks to go to a no-deal cliff edge, they managed to get a deal on the Northern Ireland Protocol. But as we've seen since then, this was a very bad deal for Britain because it put the border, the customs border, into the Irish Sea. And you have all of this very tricky political process to get through for the UK to make that happen in a way that is not going to be completely horrible for the unionist population and indeed for the business community in in Northern Ireland. So I think the UK has been haunted by that experience of being pushed into a corner, having to concede to something at the last minute, because you can't start rewriting legal texts wholesale in that environment with the clock ticking. So now the UK has been pushing for the tunnel to be brought forward to July. Um, so a long but, tunnel. Yeah. Is, this a, is this a tunnel running from July to October with frenetic negotiations and they're expecting no leaks out of that hermetically sealed tunnel over a period of well, this would, months? Th- this would be, a, th- this would be a, a shorter tunnel where the UK could try and get what it hopes to achieve its own particular version of this free trade agreement in July, perhaps drifting into August, so that they're not in this pressure cooker situation that they were in last year. How has that been read on the European side of things, this request for an early entry into the tunnel? Is this a sign that there may be room for compromise, or is this a mutual understanding that the earlier you get down to intensive brass tax negotiations, the better? Well, certainly the EU is resisting a July tunnel for a number of reasons. First of all, they don't believe the time is right. They just feel that the UK has really not shifted on its demands in the negotiations. There has been no movement as far as the EU is concerned on the key issues that we've discussed, level playing field, fisheries and so on, and that there's just no point in shifting to a tunnel format unless there is an indication that the UK is going to come back to the commitments of the political declaration, which, of course, lie at the heart of the divergence of opinion between both sides. The UK says that the political declaration is simply a framework. It's not legally binding. There's no. It, it doesn't say that all of the things in the political declaration have to be in the treaty, whereas the EU says, well, actually, this was our understanding of how we were going to proceed. This was the blueprint that we'd both signed up to on level playing fields, mm. on rules of origin, on a whole spectrum of areas. The other reason why the EU does not want to have a tunnel in July is because of the pandemic. The German presidency takes over on the 1st of July and it is going to be completely consumed by the seven-year EU budget, which of course, as, as you know from our pandemic discussions, is linked to the big 750 billion euro recovery fund. So that's going to take up all of the EU's energy and time in July. August the institutions closed down. So that's why the EU is saying we're going to do the EU budget and the recovery plan first. And then September and October is where we will get into the final stretch of the Brexit negotiations. Now, they have reached an agreement just in the, in the meantime that they will shift some of the modalities of the negotiations around. They'll have smaller teams meeting each other in person, if that's appropriate. They'll have more frequent meetings every week. 
At the moment, of course, you have a week of negotiations, then you have two weeks for a break, and then you come back again. And to the EU, that's very important because Michel Barnier has to brief member states, he has to brief the European Parliament, and then they prepare for the next round of negotiations. So there is a bit of a shift in how they're going to do this, but it's certainly not what anyone would describe as a tunnel where you go in, you lock the doors, you you kind of churn your way through the issues and you come out on the other side, bleary-eyed, sleepless, uh, but, but yet clutching a, a piece of paper. Yeah. Has, the, has the EU's attitude hardened since the UK's interpretation of the political declaration, this idea of, well, it's only a political declaration and we don't see these things as binding? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think trust has, has suffered in the opening parts of, of this process, in particular around the Northern Ireland Protocol, because you had... You know, very clear declarations from people like Boris Johnson and Michael Gove uh, and Dominic Raab and others that there would not be any checks and controls. There would be unfettered access both ways. And the EU was saying, hang on a second, you've just agreed an international treaty, which does mean controls and checks uh, on on the Irish Sea. And, you know, it's true that the political declaration is non-binding. It is a framework for where the final future relationship will end up. But It was also important to member states in that this document enshrined what member states wanted out of this process. And to them, it is a a fairly sacred text that, you know, while you don't have to follow the letter of every single paragraph of it, it did point to a direction of travel that they wanted to proceed along. And if the UK is perceived as just walking away from some of those commitments then, that has not really helped the atmosphere. Mm. There are issues around what kind of access the UK wants to the single market that is troubling for, for the EU. There's a question of rules of origin. For example, to give you a great term, diagonal accumulation, which essentially means that the UK <laughs> says if we can, well, if we have a free trade agreement. Diagonal accumulation. What was the other diagonal, one? That's the best thing I've heard since zonal whatchamacallit. So what that means is when you sell a good into the single market, you have to be able to show that a certain percentage of that good is actually British made. Uh, it's not something that you got from Vietnam and then you're passing it off as a British product into the EU. In a free trade agreement, you you can have bilateral accumulation where there's a, an agreement between both sides that, say, a British car is 55% made up of British parts and, and then other parts are from elsewhere and that's all agreed between both sides. Now, what diagonal accumulation means is that, say, the EU has a free trade agreement with Canada. The UK then get a free trade agreement with Canada and they're saying, well, since we both have free trade agreements with Canada, what if we got nuts and bolts and widgets from Canada for our product, assemble them in Stoke, and then sell them on, sell the whole thing on as, as a British product into the, into the single market? And the EU is saying, absolutely not. That's not in our interests. You know, we need to know that whatever comes in is part of a bilateral free trade agreement. It's not something that the UK is able to get via its own free trade agreement with with a third country. I mean, the, the UK is pushing this the whole question of car batteries. So if the UK wants to advance and, and thrive in the electrical car sector, then there's only a few places around the world that you can get the batteries for a car. And they would be countries that the UK would be anxious to do a free trade agreement with. And if the EU has already a free trade agreement there, why not just use that kind of diagram to give the UK a free access into the single market with 
those component parts that come from elsewhere. So the EU is saying, well, this is just not in our own economic long-term interests. The UK is a major industrial power. If they can do that, then that gives them a particular strategic advantage, which we are simply not going to tolerate. All right. Well, okay. Well, there's only a short time left on our recording time, Tony. So where do we go from here? We've we know that the UK isn't going to have an extension. We know the Joint Committee is meeting again. So what will be happening in the coming weeks? Well, on Monday, Colin, we're going to have the high-level conference, which is provided for in the political declaration. So that's basically a coming together of. Boris Johnson and the leaders of the three main institutions in Brussels. So that's Ursula von der Leyen from the European Commission, uh, Charles Michel, the president of the council, and David Sassoli, who is the president of the European Parliament. And that was foreseen as a stock-taking moment, a rendezvous in June, which would hopefully signal good progress, keep things going. But obviously, that progress hasn't been there and the UK has clearly now formally rejected an extension to the transition. I think the UK were hoping that the EU would agree to a July tunnel ahead of this meeting on Monday so that Boris Johnson would have something to show for his efforts. But as we've discussed, that that's not going to happen, although they are going to speed up things and have different formats here and there. So not a huge amount is expected from this meeting on Monday. Then at the end of the week, of course, you have the normal European Council, and they're not going to be discussing Brexit at that. That's going to be completely dominated again by the coronavirus pandemic and where things are at with the EU recovery fund. And then at the end of June, you know, we are going to get an acceleration of, of negotiations on Brexit on the future relationship and you're also going to get meetings of the specialised subcommittee which looks in more technical detail at the Northern Ireland Protocol how all that stuff is going to be fixed and ready to go and then they feed their findings into the overall joint committee so still a lot of Brexity stuff happening over the next six to eight weeks Right, I hear one of my children whistling tunelessly in the background I don't know whether if you listener can hear that but nonetheless Tony just how do you what do you detect on on the Irish side of things you, you were mentioning that you know Brexit isn't going to be raised at the European Council meeting is there an eagerness maybe for Ireland to, to get this on the agenda or is there a concern that it's not on the agenda or are they happy to be guided by the European pace of things given that Ireland too is obviously affected by coronavirus in terms of an immediate and proximate threat? Well, the, I mean, uh, the Irish government is, is in a somewhat awkward position because of course they want to make sure that the, the protocol actually gets bedded down in Northern Ireland, that it works, that it's done as pragmatically as possible but they don't want to go off on a solo run advocating for something that would alienate member states and give them any anxiety about the northern border being a, a black hole for the or a backdoor into the single market that's not properly monitored and, and so on. There is an interesting connection between Brexit and the recovery fund. The recovery fund for the EU is, as I mentioned, 750 billion euro. It's really designed to help those countries that were hardest hit, that were poorest when the pandemic hit that had the least amount of fiscal space to deal with the fallout of the pandemic and the commission has been working on an allocation key to figure out you know what countries get what amount of money out of that 750 billion euro according to that allocation key ireland would be expected to get 3 billion euro between 21 and uh, 2021 and 2024 although the minister um, for europe says that's 
to be decided and yet to be negotiated. So is, yeah, there, is, there, exactly. is there hope of squeezing a little more out of that given the extra well, threat of Brexit? Yeah, well that that's what they're that's what they're really pushing for at the moment. I mean the the essential argument is that the allocation key used by the Commission is backward looking. It it looks at the health of economies before the pandemic struck when and Ireland, you know, had a had a fairly glowing economic growth at that point. What Ireland is arguing is that this should also take effect account of other shocks that are coming down the tracks, most notably Brexit at the end of this year. Even if there isn't a no deal fallout, a free trade agreement will cost the Irish economy significantly in terms of, you know, formalities, customs costs and other elements of a free trade agreement. So this is something that Ireland is going to be arguing over the next few weeks. They're not alone in this. Countries like Belgium and the Netherlands are going to be arguing pretty much the same thing. All right. OK, Tony, we'll leave it there for this week. From me, Colm O'Mungoyne, Deputy Foreign Editor, normally in Dublin, but currently working from home in Kildare. And from me, Tony Connolly, RT's Europe Editor in Brussels. Welcome back to Brexit Republic, and we'll talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.